Many of them enter this experience with a deficit perspective just because they've been breathing the air that everybody else breathes. And so what we always tell them is, whenever you find yourself surprised, that means that you thought something else was going to happen. So when you walk into the elementary school and it's a beautiful space with children that are excited about learning, um, and you and you're shocked by that, that means that your schema, you know, told you that something else was was going to happen. I'm Emily Shields. And I'm Andrew Seligson. And welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Good to see you, Andrew. We're once again without our co-host. Yes, Marisol, I think will be back with us next time. But she's somewhere uh, living the dream right now. That dissertation dream? I think I think it is yeah. that dream that uh, always kind of verges on a nightmare. Or it's <laughs> actually yeah. just a nightmare that you hope will transform itself into a dream in retrospect. Uh huh. Uh huh. That's my memory of it. Yes. So, what's going on in Boston? They had a big race here yesterday. Oh, I did hear about that one. Yeah, I, I'm actually today. Uh, I know. I know that you and I are in different places on the um, kind of our relationship to sports spectrum. Um, but in that I'm, mine is begrudging, and yours is a little more enthusiastic. Mine is embracing and full of love. Yeah. So I'm feeling very inspired today by three things. One is the Boston Marathon, uh, both the men's and women's races, exciting for different reasons, uh, but exciting. Uh, and I just find people, you know, running a marathon at all kind of inspiring. Uh, Tiger Woods victory. Tiger's a complicated figure and all that. But I think for any of us who have, you know, aged uh, watching him fight his way back and whatever, that was pretty great. Yeah, I was forced to watch some of that. Uh, I didn't watch any of it. I just followed it. I would check in on the scores. Like, I, I don't need to see golf. I just want to know it. Like, the story is all I care about with golf because I find it too boring to watch. And then uh, I'm also a fan of soccer. And there's a very exciting uh, chase for the championship going on in the Premier League in England. And my favorite soccer player is this guy named Mohamed Salah, this Egyptian uh, guy who plays for Mo Liverpool. Mosallah. This one I'm a little more enthusiastic about. Okay. Well, he scored, if you haven't seen it, Google like Mo Salah Wonder Goal or something. I think it'll be like a million people will have posted on a million places. He scored an incredible goal this weekend for Liverpool to keep their title hopes alive. Uh, And because he's such an inspiring character anyway. I might have to show it to my, my kiddos for inspiration. I am, in fact coaching soccer right now which will surprise lots of people and when you say right now you don't mean literally as we're recording the podcast do you because you do know emily coaching a sport involves you have to maybe get out there Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. no um no but in let's see four hours i will be actively in amid my coaching duties yeah i'm coaching my son's u7 team that's so. a very fancy term too, U seven for like um, yeah. what I, I'm guessing we're talking about. I like that. Yeah, yeah. That's what it's called. Uh, so 
I assured all the parents when I my first coach's email that I am eminently qualified for this because I played one very bad year of JV soccer 25 years ago. <laughs> Sounds solid to me. <laughs> I mean, at that age, right, mostly you should There's roll the balls out and let the kids play. So that's the yeah, perfect we, set of qualifications. We got beaten badly on Sunday. So <laughs> we'll just see at tonight's practice if we can come back from that. Well, uh, you know, stay fun. tuned. <laughs> stay tuned here at the Compact Nation podcast for the inspiring journey of Emily's kids U seventeen. It, it's the wolves. The wolves. <laughs> I like it. All right, the wolves are on the hunt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what? Another exciting news related to our guest today, our interviewee today. We are uh, finalizing some plans for the Midwest Campus Compact Conference. So it's the the third of our regional conferences, and it's coming up this May 29, 30, and 31 in the Twin Cities. We will be releasing the full schedule yet this week, and early registration continues through next week. So we already have a ton of registrants. Um, very excited about the participation this year and the sessions are going to be amazing. So I'm very excited to release those. Um, our interviewee today will also be a part of that program along with Nancy Thomas talking about election engagement and a couple of folks from the Wilder Foundation in the Twin Cities. So we're very excited for that coming up and just wanted to plug it quick since those early rates uh, have expire soon. So if you want to come and spend less money, now's the time. I'm excited for that. The culmination of our season of regional conferences mm-hmm. and in a city I love, the uh, the great city of Minneapolis on the banks of the Mississippi River, both banks. So you can really say it's on the banks. I'm ready to love it again. I was there twice last week and it was snowing both times so just the april snow factor is getting to me at the moment right so you know in fairness the mere fact that this is happening at the very end of may does not mean we can be certain it will not snow in the i mean i think it's just we're never certain of that it's going to snow forever and ever yeah i have very distinct memories of uh playing softball games well into may in the Twin Cities and losing all feeling and all of my digits. Okay. Uh, no, the yeah. weather's going to be beautiful and nice and you should come to the conference. Yeah. Let's stop talking. <laughs> yeah. And it's a great city. Uh, it is. Yeah. And it's one of two great cities right next to each other. So you get St. Paul in the mix, you know, at no extra charge. All right. So should I explain who our as yet mystery interviewee is this week and how that's relevant to all this? Let's do it. All right. Uh, So I had a conversation with Eva Zygmunt, and Eva is many things. Um, She is the Helen Gant Elmore Distinguished Professor of Elementary Education at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. She also directs the Schools Within the Context of Community program, uh, which is the the teacher preparation program at Ball State. Uh, She has written and published on this work. She now leads um, what's called the Alliance for Community Engaged Teacher Preparation, which we'll we'll talk about some in the interview, a, a national effort to expand some of the teacher preparation practices that they've developed at Ball State. 
Um, and and here's why she will be uh, sharing some ideas with us at the Midwest Conference. She is the 2018 uh, recipient of the Thomas Ehrlich Award for Civically Engaged Faculty given by Campus Compact, the highest award we bestow. So this interview with Eva Zygmunt is well-timed as the nomination window for the Ehrlich Award is open for 2019. The Ehrlich Award is given each year to a, a senior faculty member. We usually say somebody who's had 10 or more years of experience from a Campus Compact member institution. If you want to learn more about the nomination process, you can go to compact.org slash Ehrlich, E-H-R-L-I-C-H, compact.org slash Ehrlich. Or if you just go to the homepage, compact.org, you can find some links to click on through. Nominations are open till May 31, so you still have plenty of time. Uh, and again, I encourage you to go to compact.org or compact.org slash Ehrlich to learn more about it. So at the conference, Eva will be receiving the award. She and her uh, the other finalists for the award will also be participating in a plenary panel. Uh, we've asked them to talk about some of the big things they've learned through the engaged scholarship, engaged teaching uh, that they've been engaged in. So uh, really looking forward to that conversation. And I really enjoyed speaking with Eva uh, kind of in anticipation of, of that gathering. And uh, we can go to that conversation right now. Eva Zygmunt, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I wanted to start at a time before you had begun to undertake the work that we recognize through the Ehrlich Award and that, I, as I understand it, now occupies much of your teaching and your research and your uh, kind of scholarly energy before you undertook the work with the Whiteley neighborhood that we'll dig into, uh, how did you think about your career, your work uh, as a teacher educator, as a scholar? Um, yeah, what sort of walk back to that time and just think a little bit about kind of how you were thinking about what kinds of goals you were pursuing and how you were doing it. Um, I, I might go back even a little bit further than that, if, if you will. Um, I, I was doing some work prior to, you know, joining the academy. Uh, much of my work was done in community, and I was doing some work um, in Minnesota. I was director of a large early childhood program in a um, primarily African-American community, um, employing teachers who were African-American, also teachers who were white. Um, and I really began to notice that some teachers had a great facility in connecting with families in the larger community and other teachers really struggled to do that and, and struggled to form those relationships. And, and as I was, you know, working to construct professional development opportunities for people and really trying to just navigate that space myself, um, I really started to think what's the difference here and how do we prepare teachers who will be equipped, you know, with both the skill and the will to connect with all families and work to understand the context of their lives. Um, and so, you know, that was work that I was doing prior to coming to the academy. And then, you know, of course, I, I joined the faculty at Ball State and I spent a couple of years 
teaching classes on campus, and I, I really started to have a problem with the way that we were um, enacting practicum experiences, where essentially we would say, you know, give someone a map and say, you're, you're driving out there, go, you know, teach in that school, come back to campus, and we'll talk about that and see how that went for you. Um, because, you know, of course, my philosophy and that of many of my colleagues is that, of course, you know, to be a great teacher, you need to understand your content and you need to have strategies for delivering that content. But above and beyond that, you really need to understand the context of children's lives and the culture of their community so that you can take the, con the content that you are responsible for teaching and, and more clearly and intentionally match that um, to children's lived experience to make it more relevant and more engaging and more culturally responsive. I think the other thing that I learned um, in Minneapolis in this very low income African-American neighborhood in which I was working is that there is great wisdom and expertise in spaces that um, largely goes unrecognized. And that those funds of knowledge and that community cultural wealth can be privileged um, and leveraged in your work as an educator um, with great impact and um, great mutual benefit um, for teachers and children and families. So, you know, those were the issues that I was considering, you know, before we had the opportunity and the privilege of developing the program that now uh, we are moving into our second decade. So let's let's talk about how how that program kind of practically got started. Uh, so this is a, a partnership with the Whiteley neighborhood in Muncie, where Ball State is located. And yeah, where where did it come from, and and what's just literally the kind of origin story of of this work? I, I always say that it was as if the planets were aligned because um, there was this this mutual sort of urgency that that emerged. Um, a colleague and I were um, co-chairing some United Way committees in our in our community here in Muncie, and we were serving alongside a member of the Whiteley neighborhood, and we started having conversations about education, us sharing our dissatisfaction with how we were training teachers, and this member of this community, um, you know, stating uh, the urgency that they were feeling for children in the neighborhood that had teachers who would honor their lived experience. In our particular situation with the school that we were working in, they had one of the highest attendance rates in the state of Indiana. So family and children were doing the work of getting to school. But at the same time, the school had had, you know, five or six different principals um, within the last few years. And um, students were passing the state exam at a rate of about 30%. So there was really this, this mismatch, um, it seemed. And, you know, again, with urgency, the matriarch of this community reached out to us and said, you know, many of us never had educational experiences where we felt valued or affirmed or that our culture was acknowledged or privileged. And we, we want that for our children and we want teachers who have again, that skill and that will to, to make that happen. Will you come alongside us? And it was then, at that point, our university launched, launched an initiative um, in what, what they called immersive learning, which was you know, funding to um, work with a community partner, um, 
so that students could solve sort of real world problems, if you will. Um, and so we were able to leverage what was happening with the university, you know, what was happening um, in our little corner of the world, and then a need um, that was expressed from the community to come together and begin to vision what that could look like. You know, I, so I, um, in my own past, spent a bunch of time working, uh, especially in Camden, New Jersey, but in other places, in schools partnerships. And as I'm sure you know, there's often a tendency on the part of many people to kind of blame parents for the challenges children are facing. And one of the things that was always striking to me in that context was that the parents we were working with were now uh, many generations in the context of Camden, and I think Muncie probably has some similar parallel history, you know, generations into a crisis in in the city uh, that that meant that the parents were people who had been scarred by experiences with the schools because the schools had not served them well. And I'm wondering what what made it possible for the parents to come to you? Uh, why do you think they had, you know what I mean? In other words, there's often a, a great deal of quite legitimate suspicion Absolutely. of universities, of experts, et cetera. What, what, how, how did that come to pass as far as you understand? Well, um, again, it was, it was a matriarch um, in the community. Um, she and her husband, um, you know, well-known volunteers um, in the larger community as well as in the neighborhood um, very active in the local community council. And, you know, again, I think, you know, um, the particular person who approached us had, you know, was a former teacher. Um, when she left her career as a teacher, she started a neighborhood tutoring program. You know, so she's been chipping away at this for her entire career and beyond, you know, and is now approaching, you know, 70 years of age and is losing some patience, you know, <laughs> and, and, and really wanting to reach out to the university and say, you know, will you come alongside us? There was some um, trust already established because of our relationship working on this particular um, United Way committee. But absolutely, um, this community has a history of being studied by the university. Um, and I think all universities have a tendency, unfortunately, to make decisions about what communities need, um, go and do a project, um, sort of assess or gather data and information that they need, find that to be a very valuable experience for their students, and then leave and never come back. Um, and I would say that this particular community had many instances of um, past opportunities such as that. And there was a lot of reparative work to do. Um, and, and a lot of that just meant continuing to show up, you know, um, continuing to, you know, we did a lot of work before we started the program, just coming to community council meetings, maybe that were happening in people's garages and bringing our own lawn chairs and just listening and learning and finding out a little bit about where we are. And then certainly after we did begin our work, entering that work with a posture of humility and hopefully grace in saying we are here to listen and learn. Um, you know, one of the first things that we did um, the first year that we began the program was hold an event. Um, we called it Moms Night Out. We invited neighborhood moms. There were experiences for the children. We had massages and manicures and jewelry making and dinner and that um, was donated by the community and 
Um, we just really ask the fundamental question, tell us what, tell us what children need, you know? And we heard a resounding message over and over again that children need things to do after school. They need things to do on the weekend. They need things to do in the summer that will help keep them on track to be successful educationally. You know, this is a community that hugely values children and hugely values children's educational success. In fact, that we believe their lives depend on being successful um, academically. And so what can you do to help us make that happen? You know, and once again, we promised ourselves that we would not be one of those programs that says, thank you for letting us know. And then, you know, leaving. So we felt, we felt an urgency <laughs> to be good stewards of this information that people have very generously and honestly provided. And so you know, at that moment, again, one, another one of those moments where I feel like the planets came together because it was three, four days after that, that an RFP from the Indiana Department of Education came out and um, it was for out-of-school programming for low-income children, um, but it had to be based on community-identified need. <laughs> and we thought, wow, <laughs> that seems to work. So we were able to apply um, and get a very large grant from the Indiana Department of Education's 21st Century Fund to begin an after-school Saturday and summer program for neighborhood children that would focus on grade-level literacy. And I think because we were able to come together and make that happen and respond to a community concern, um, people thought, hey, you know, I, I, think, I think they're listening. And... Uh, they may be here for a while. So tell me about, you know, in some ways there's, I think, two pieces of this that ha that are connected, but are also kind of analytically separable. One is the partnership with the Whiteley neighborhood. The other is the, uh, the schools within the context of community program that is your approach to educating teachers. Um, so how, tell, tell me a little bit about schools within the context of community and how you have fit that into this partnership that you've been describing. Absolutely. It's, it's all interconnected. <laughs> um, so yes, you know, as I, as I said before, um, believe very much that um, an integral part of the development of, of educators should be um, the imperative of helping them understand that contextual cognizance means everything to their work. Um, really want to dispute the notion that you can just drop in anywhere and teach absent that knowledge. Um, so we, you know, have intentionally developed this program um, so that, you know, if we believe that they must learn that as, as uh, pre-service teachers, then we need to get them off campus for the whole semester so that they can do that. So that as they are practicing teaching in the school for part of their day, the rest of their day, all day, every day, is spent in the neighborhood in which the school is situated. All of their coursework happens out of the local community center, you know, interdisciplinary block of coursework delivered by six faculty from different departments and different colleges who work to interweave that content seamlessly into one experience that will help further their development and their commitment to issues of equity and social justice in education. Part of that 
experience is being matched with a family in the neighborhood. And that was an idea that came from people in the neighborhood. They said, if your candidates are going to be here, let us adopt them for the semester. So every two candidates is matched with a mentor family who invites them to church, invites them to family gatherings, says, I'm going to go to a community council you know, meeting. Will you come along with us? So that candidates' participation in the life of the neighborhood can be much more authentic than it would be otherwise if they were sitting in the back and trying to make sense of what was going on. And candidates have reported to us that that relationship with their mentor family has made all of the difference, how they were welcomed with hospitality, how they have been able to really learn um, the context of, of children's lives and much more about the culture of the neighborhood. Many of our candidates have very little prior exposure to diverse populations of children and families. And even though they don't believe that they do, many of them enter this experience with a deficit perspective just because they've been breathing the air that everybody else breathes. Um, and so what we always tell them is whenever you find yourself surprised, that means that you thought something else was going to happen. So when you walk into the elementary school and it's a beautiful space with children that are excited about learning um, and you and you're shocked by that, that means that your schema, you know, told you that something else was, was going to happen. And so we do a lot of reflective work with candidates um, and ask them to be very intentional about that reflection and, you know, reading something in classwork and then experiencing something in the community. And then what does that, how do they translate that into a practice in the schools? How are they interconnecting all of those things and really sort of deconstructing and rebuilding a new way or a new lens through which to see the world? What have been, I love that description of what a surprise is, because I think it's a great it points out something that we often miss about our own experience of being surprised. May I also add one more critical of the approach. Another really significant part of the work that we're doing is to help further the priorities of the community. Um, never is there a semester where we come up with an idea and say, Hey, you know, um, we, the, the community council is very organized. In fact, Wiley is one of the most mobilized neighborhoods in the city of Muncie. Their community council has been in existence since the early 1950s. This is a neighborhood that is used to mobilizing and working together for change. Um, so one of the things that we do every year is return to the community council, their strategic plan, the priorities that they have set, and ask how can we come alongside and further the priorities of the neighborhood. So. Candidates are participating every semester in critical service learning, whether that is alongside the community council or addressing some issue in the school, but always responding to the need um, that has been dictated by the space that we occupy. So what are what are things about, you know, I'm sort of envisioning the, the earlier the, the early years of undertaking this work and, and kind of taking your students in the way you've described and connecting them with families in the community. Were there things that surprised you about your students' responses, about responses from community members, about any of that? I think our candidates 
have always been um, very surprised, very pleasantly surprised by the amazing hospitality of families in the community. Mentors, many of whom have been with us since the very beginning of our program. They are welcomed with open arms. People are extraordinarily grateful that they are undertaking this work because they know not just what it means for their children, but what it will mean for any children and families wherever our candidates might go and teach. Um, that was not surprising to me, um, but that has been very you know, pleasantly surprising to our candidates, again, many of whom um, uh, discuss the relationship that they have with their mentor family as one of the most critical pieces of their learning throughout the semester. Um, the generosity of people in the neighborhood has been overwhelming, not just in terms of their interaction with our students as mentor families, but in their interaction with us as colleagues in this work. Um, again, we privilege, you know, our mantra is to, you know, elevate and privilege the wisdom and expertise of members of the community in everything that we do. Um, so when candidates are going to design a unit on civil rights for children in the after-school program, they will teach those lessons to members of the community first, and they will critique those lessons and say, you got that right, or you got that wrong, or say that a little bit more strongly, or never say that again. <laughs> you know? But they, they truly are colleagues. Um, you know, together we have worked to develop a neighborhood civil rights museum. You know, when, when our candidates want to know how to discuss the issue of race with young children, um, they give us great guidance um, and wisdom about how they would have us do that. And we practice that with them. So how people in the neighborhood have emerged as colleagues and their generosity in donating, they would not call it donating, um, their generosity in, you know, just extending, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of their time over the last 10 years um, has been, you know, overwhelming. And um, it's just been an amazing privilege to do this work alongside such a community. Uh, it's been an overwhelming privilege to do this work alongside such a committed um, community of families. Have there been along the way, you know, I'm imagining, as you say, students, uh, you know, who may not have had experience working across difference, who, uh, you know, I'm imagining at least some of your students coming from backgrounds that are quite different from the context of the Whiteley neighborhood, et cetera. Um, are there, have there been moments of tension either where they have resisted uh, kind of ways of characterizing contexts that uh, they're hearing from your partners in the community or um, in, in your work where you've gotten uh, some sort of critical responses from the neighborhood? Are, are there sort of instances like that that have emerged? Our program is a 16-week program, and we're asking candidates to do some really hard work in a relatively short period of time. Um, to go from not understanding that white privilege is a thing <laughs> to, you know, asking them you know, to do that hard, reflective work. Um, 
we're getting better as a program as a whole to preparing our candidates for this experience before they get there. Um, it used to be back in the day when we started the program, we didn't even have a, a, a course that addressed issues of diversity before they came. So they were really kind of starting from scratch. And um, so now I feel like we have really scaffolded this experience in a much more effective way so that they are, they are more well prepared, even though now the, you know, issues of injustice, issues of oppression, things that they're learning about, things that they're reading about now impact people that they know and love. And that's a very different thing than reading about it um, in, a, in a manuscript. Um, and so they will often um, sort of retreat into a posture of, of guilt. You know, um, some of these, some of this new learning is very, very uncomfortable. Um, and so we work a great deal to be careful, you know, to be extraordinarily caring of our students as, as they are doing this work and to help them understand that, you know, guilt is a, guilt is a common reaction, but it's not a place where you want to build your house. You know, that can, that can be, um, something that serves you, but um, so you know, faculty over the years have become quite skillful, I believe, in helping candidates negotiate um, some of that, you know, emotional work. I mean, the work is emotional physically, they're not used to being all day, every day out away from campus. It can be um, exhausting, you know, emotionally, as I said, as. Um, you know, the way that they thought the world worked no longer makes sense. Some of the relationships that they have in the rest of their lives don't necessarily make sense to them anymore. Um, and, you know, and sort of they can have a they can have a crisis of, of a certain type. And we need to be watchful and very mindful and, and keep our finger on the pulse of that so that we're not adding more when we know that we just need to stop and let this think in, you know, and, and having that flexibility being away from campus um, all day, every day gives us a much greater degree of freedom in saying, we're going to stop right now and go in the gym and play a little bit of basketball, you know, <laughs> or let's go over to the park and we can sit in the sunshine and let's talk this through. And um, faculty work together for two hours every week to reflect on the past week and then to plan for the next week. So this experience, which is immersive, is also um, pedagogically emerging and tailored very much to the needs of individual students and the collective within the context of what's happening in the world, what's happening in the community, what's happening in the school, and what's happening, happening for them personally as they do the hard work of um, accommodating, you know, all of their experiences and information and relationships um, into a new way of seeing the world. So you have not only done a lot of work to create the thing you're describing uh, in a place for students at Ball State University, you've also been engaged in work to help kind of propagate the model uh, more broadly, can you can you talk a little bit about what that's involved and where that stands? 
Absolutely. So, um, you know, in the early years of our, of our work, um, we began, um, you know, writing, doing a little bit of research on the model, on the impact on candidates, on the community, on, um, you know, students in schools. And, you know, and we began presenting around the country about our work. And people started to become very interested in it. And um, several people, you know, said, can we come to Muncie and, you know, kind of shadow you for a few days? And, and you know, we were very excited about that and welcomed people. And, you know, we thought that we were onto something here and we wanted to share it. I mean, our, our goal um, is ultimately is to have a impact in transforming the field of educator preparation to ensure that all teachers have access to um, experiences that will compel them to be more equitable and socially just in, in their work with children. And so we, we started getting more and more requests. And then occasionally we would get a request and say, hey, can you, can you come out and see what we're doing and give us some feedback on that? And just from an efficiency point of view, um, one of our colleagues said, hey, let's host a summer institute on community-engaged teacher preparation, and we'll see how many people come. And the first, we invited people to come in teams. They would come with a faculty member, maybe an administrator, a community partner, and maybe someone from their local school. They would come and learn about the model, um, and then they would work in their teams to craft a plan to bring back to the university where they are working in order to more authentically engage in the community in which their institution was situated. Part of that summer institute was also um, hearing from our mentor families, you know, as a panel. So they, they were co-presenters in the institute and hearing from our candidates about their experience and also getting out into the Whiteley neighborhood and meeting people in, in that space. Um, so, you know, the first year we had a very small conference, um, the second year more, the third year more, and now we're very, very excited because what the conference is morphing into is an opportunity for individuals who were with us in the early years who have begun their work, maybe now in, it's in its third or fourth year, to come back and present on their work so that our institute now has become a showcase for different configurations of this work because it will always look differently wherever it's happening because the needs of the community and the populations and the candidates at the university itself will be different. So we've had people present on working with populations of English, English language learners. We had a team from Australia last year talk about their work with Aboriginal populations. So. Um, it's really exciting for us to see people come back and to see what's happened and for have, you know, to have them. Um, so we're, we'd like to think that we're all together growing a movement that is getting to have a dent in the field. Because, of course, we believe that it's a compelling and justifiable direction. I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned that you, from the beginning, you did some research about the work that you were doing. And I know there've been publications that have come out of it, books and articles, et cetera. I'm wondering if you reflect back, you know, again, to the period, say before this project, you know, more than 10 years ago, et cetera, 
do you do you think differently about scholarly work in that form about research and publication than you did or how do you think about the role of kind of academic research in the context of this work uh you know yeah as it's as it's lived by you and your colleagues i think we do um think very differently about it i i think in the earlier years um when many of us were pre-tenured, <laughs> we, you know, we were looking for measures through which to assess our candidates' emerging dispositions toward this, you know, and, and I, you know, that's, that's all well and good. I think it's important. I think that's important work. Um, I remember the very first time that I had a manuscript returned to me um, in order to complete a significant revision and the reviewer said, I don't hear the voice of the community in this work. I hear what you're saying. I hear what happened for your candidates. I'm hearing nothing about how the community feels about this work, what the community's experience has been with this work, what the mutual benefit of this work is for people um, in the neighborhood. And, you know, that is a key omission, um, you know. And so I think we have worked very hard, again, to privilege those voices as we um, continue our work and to, to really look at this work, you know, very organically in terms of what's happening in all of these different spaces and, and how do all of those things come together um, to make meaning of, of, what we're ha of what's happening. And it's, it's complicated to communicate. Um, we often get the question, are your mentor families paid for this work? That's a question that everyone always asks. Um, and when we have, you know, approached that issue with our mentor families, they've been actually quite offended by that. Um, the, the reciprocity and the mutuality of our work, um, I think is challenging to describe on paper. That's why it's really exciting for us to welcome people um, into the space where they can really see. So it's a, it's a challenge. Um, and, you know, and the work has been perceived a couple of times on paper as being a one-sided benefit to the university and the university's candidates. And so the challenge is how do we effectively communicate what's happening here? And part of that means privileging the voice of members of the community in sharing what their experiences. That's a big lesson that we've learned. When, so, uh, you know, in thinking about those larger kind of the, the opportunities for multiplier effects from this work, obviously one dimension of that is that your students go out and teach lots and lots of students. And uh, that's one of the, the, the kind of elements of it. There's also this kind of replication or not exactly replication, but supporting parallel programs developing in other places around the country. Is, is there a dimension of this or have you seen uh, impacts, whether intentional or otherwise, is it something you work to cultivate sort of as the graduates of your program as advocates out there in the world? I'm, I'm wondering if that's one of the things that comes out of this. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that we're excited um, to share and we're, you know, we're still in the process of um, leveraging funding to more effectively follow our candidates into practice. Um, but the last survey that we did indicated that 70% of our program graduates were working 
um, in spaces that were diverse, you know, culturally, ethnically, linguistically, socioeconomically. Um, and that is highly significant because many of our candidates, you know, upon entrance into our program of educator preparation, express a desire to go back to the small towns where they grew up and, and teach in the communities where they live. So, you know, that tells us we have done some work um, to examine efficacy and their perceived efficacy. And what, you know, what we know is if you, if you feel that you will be successful, that um, has... Uh, there's a relationship, at least, um, between your ability to actually do that, and not only do that, but to believe that if you are culturally responsive and, and critically conscious in your work, that it will have a positive impact on children and their learning. Um, so, so yes, um, and it was really exciting. Ball State University just celebrated its centennial, and... Um, each college was charged with, you know, celebrating the centennial in a unique way. And we decided to have a reunion of our, of our program candidates. And we had, a, you know, a cadre of candidates, not every candidate, but a cadre of candidates from every year, um, you know, including the first when I'm not sure we exactly knew what we were doing. And they all stood up and gave testimony to the difference that that experience had made in who they are as a teacher and who they are as a leader um, in their respective spaces. Um, in fact, we had one candidate who's just finishing up her PhD now and would love to come back and teach in our program, which would be <laughs> you know, quite amazing. Um, we have candidates now who are super, who are student teaching under the guidance of former candidates, um, which is really exciting. Um, so, yes, I would say that um, many of the candidates not only have developed the will and the skill themselves to enact pedagogies which are responsive and sustaining, but have also acquired um, an ethic of activism and um, how to navigate um, systems and with prudence and grace work toward changing um, and finding allies in that work to make that happen. So you mentioned that you are kind of looking ahead now to the second decade of, of this work. Uh, what, what are the things you see as kind of the big challenges you want to take on or the steps forward that you're hoping to make as you continue this work? We continue to have great dreams. You know, I, I want to tell you about one surprise that I would have never expected that has been just quite wonderful because I think it relates to moving forward. You know, as I've said, you know, in our work with candidates, we want to privilege the wisdom and expertise of, of members of the community. Um, quite early on, we met um, one of the members of the neighborhood um, who uh, is, was, yeah, let me start that over again. Um, one of our original mentor families um, were a couple that were very directly connected to a large church in the neighborhood. Um, he was an associate pastor and she was an ordained uh, minister. Um, he's now the lead pastor of that church. But we developed a, a, a very nice relationship with them and they became a mentor family. 
Um, when we got that very large grant for the after school program, we hired her as the director of that program, which meant everything to the success of that program. I have always said one of the things that I think is most successful about that program is that nobody associates it with Paul State University. Um, it belongs to the neighborhood and, and people claim it as such, because, as they should, because they have built it. Um, so, you know, it's one thing to write a grant. It's another thing to have someone take that and make it happen. And she was amazing and has continued to be um, an amazing advocate for our program, but, um, you know, uh, an amazing educator for our candidates because she was employed in that after-school program by the university. She got tuition remission um, and completed her master's degree. Now she's teaching on campus in our program. So this notion of, you know, going above and beyond just elevating that wisdom in that space, but how do we not only extend the university into the community, but extend the community back into the university. Um, you know, we have been dreaming, you know, of course, you know, the population of children and families is becoming, you know, extraordinarily diverse in American schools. Teacher, teacher populations do not mimic that um, diversity. You know, we still continue to prepare a majority white female monolingual um, middle class um, teachers. And so, you know, we begin to dream about what would a grow your own program look like here? Um, how could we work really to recruit um, students in the school and build excitement about what it means to be a teacher and bring them through our program and, you know, dream about what incentives could be in place and what kind of commitment to stay in the district and how we then could transform you know, the culture of, of our schools and what kind of a model then that could be. Obviously, there's some very, very successful for your own models around the country, but um, that seems to be a logical extension of, of our work and a commitment that I know we would all like to make. Um, I'm going to say one more thing. I think anyone that is involved in community-engaged work understands that there is no singular energy that makes all of this happen. Um, you know, the collaboration with my colleagues who are um, extraordinarily committed and, and focused and energized and passionate about this work and the intersection of faculty and members of the community and children and families in the neighborhood and leadership in the neighborhood. Um, this has been a true university school community collaboration um, that wouldn't work without any of its integral parts. Um, so I absolutely um, am honored by the recognition, but it has been a true collaborative endeavor that we've all been privileged um, to enjoy. I appreciate your saying that in part because we sort of we know at Campus Compact that an award to an individual is in a way an awkward uh, format in this work of community engagement. And, you know, it, it uh, came through loud and clear in both your own writing uh, and also people who wrote about you that your approach with 
candidates with colleagues and especially with community members and partners uh, is deeply collaborative and that that's the foundation of the success of your work. So I, I appreciate your saying that and I know it's, uh, it's genuinely reflected in your practice. Thank you. Well, Eva, for me, the uh, Ehrlich Award is always uh, a pleasure in multiple ways. I learn about extraordinary work going on uh, from many of the people who are nominated, those we aren't able to recognize, the finalists, the, the person who receives the award. Um, and in this case, I'm just so excited that we have the opportunity to celebrate your work, to share it with people across the country. So you'll be with us at the Midwest Campus Compact Conference along with the finalists to share a little bit about your work. But I just really appreciate everything you're doing and you're taking out some time to talk with us for the podcast. So thank you very much. So we are back from our detour into interview land. Emily, what what are your thoughts about uh, Eva's work and the the things she had to say about it? Well, I think her work is amazing. And one of the things I was struck by the most, I've been doing more reading lately about, you know, this idea of decolonization and how um, we can do work in the community that's about decolonizing. It's about really um, helping supporting people reconnecting to cultural traditions and centering lived experiences. And I just felt like a lot of what she was describing was such a great example of what that looks like in action of really, um, she talked a lot about centering students lived experiences about the community, wanting to see that about them, wanting to see more culturally relevant education and the things that need to happen for that to be the case. And so again, just to see in a very real way how that can play out, um, was very interesting and inspiring to me. Um, I also thought, you know, she, she did a pretty good job of talking about the need to repair previous harm and to recognize that probably any college or university has prior harm done in communities and needing to recognize that going into the community and thinking about how to, how to do that. And, and really that there's not a simple answer, you know, it's about, Acknowledgement. It's about taking time. It's about building trust and relationships. But, um, you know, those were those are sometimes, I think, difficult, challenging concepts and conversations. And, and I think she was really able to describe how that can play out. One of the things I, I thought a lot about was um, so I like the fact that the the program is called Stu- Schools Within the Context of Community. And I was thinking about the way that context turns out to be so important for thinking about, uh, well, a ton of things. And I, so just as a few examples, the, the issue of whether to compensate uh, community mentors, et cetera, in the program. And, you know, there's an argument for doing that. There's an argument for not doing that. What turns out to be the case is in the context of their specific relationship, it's something they explored and they heard some very strong feelings about that from members of the community who did not want monetary compensation. And, you know, uh, a whole set of things like that, you know, some of the um, activities the students were involved in helping to raise money for different events, like sometimes we see those as sort of uh, side projects that aren't really leading anywhere in the context of a larger relationship where the things that you're raising money for are things that have to do with the way you are acting in partnership with others. Those can matter a lot. And it just struck me that 
the whole point about taking context seriously is that you have to take context seriously. And it just seemed like there were so many good examples of that and that the context here was a deep, longstanding relationship where there's been recognition, as you said, of harm done in the past. There's been recognition of mistakes made along the way. And there's a trust that's been built. And uh, and so the, the particulars, you, you can't evaluate them kind of in isolation. Uh, it's about creating something organic and that will look different in different places. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the other thing, big thing that stood out to me was um, her talking about effective scaffolding. You know, what, you, as we talked about on the last podcast, one of the biggest things that came up in our community partner study was the need to prepare, better prepare students when they have community experiences. I just did another faculty institute in Minnesota last week. It, it came up again, just this idea that while community organizations are excited to work with students, they have too often found them unprepared, either in terms of the classroom skills and knowledge they're supposed to have for the project to be successful, or probably more frequently, they're unprepared for the context. Um, and so I really appreciated how she talked about not just preparation within one course or program, but really preparation for the whole student experience um, through scaffolding. So how will they have important conversations early on in their academic careers about about identities and culture and things like that that will allow them to more effectively interact with others in the community once they get to that point? And I just think that kind of scaffolding is incredibly important for colleges and universities to think about if, especially if for a program like this, community is going to be so much at the center of what they're trying to do. One of the things I, I sort of took away uh, from the conversation in that context was um, Eva saying that, you know, when you're surprised, it's, it's because you were expecting something different, mm. uh, which is one of those like it's a very simple point And I'd never thought about it before. Yeah. And, I, you know, I reflected back on a lot of experiences where I had brought students into a context where they were surprised. And in some cases, maybe I kind of was I figured out that a good thing to do was to ask them what they had been expecting. Uh, but, right. but this just alerts you to do that. Right. To say, what is it? And then why were you expecting that? Absolutely. And that's uh, the and value gives, of reflection. I mean, I've had the same thing, you know, students who were um, surprised that. Uh, inner city children seem excited about learning. Wait, what? Why did you think they wouldn't seem excited about learning? Like that's really, but, but it's, but to surface that and to surface that and then get them to really think deeply about where that assumption came from is the, is the key without that. Without the, I, the, I'm horrified to think if that student had walked away thinking like, wow, I guess the, just those students are in, interested in learning and hadn't done that reflection. I mean, that's just such a, a critical piece. And that was the other one. It seemed like in um, the program she is, is working on that they have thought deeply about when and how reflection occurs with students and how important an element of that is of the program. And that was impressive as well. Yeah, and I think it related to that just the um, the fact that you can only you can only impose your own students' 
uh, learning process on your partners if they are really getting something out of it, right? If, if right. you just have students showing up and being shocked by things and whatever. And I just thought it, it was interesting to hear about what that's been like to build an environment where of course, students are going to who, who come from backgrounds where they have not experienced a particular kind of community are going to be surprised by certain things about that community. That would be true with people. Any anytime people enter new kinds of communities, that happens because you do walk in with unexamined expectations based right. on who knows what. Uh, and so to be in an environment where you've built strong enough relationships over time where that can be part of a learning process that isn't damaging to anybody. Right. Uh, and, right. you know, where everybody sees the value in being part of that work happening because there really yeah. are benefits flowing in different directions. And the benefits don't have to be immediate. I mean, it sounded to me like this this community deeply understood the benefit of changing teacher preparation. And they may not see that benefit that semester or even for three, four, five years. But that doesn't mean there's no benefit. And that doesn't mean they're incapable of understanding that long-term benefit. So I think sometimes when we talk about reciprocity, we're thinking so short term, like we have to be exchanging something right now. Um, the community needs to get something immediately for this to make sense. And that's not necessarily the case if that's not what their goal is. And it sounded like the goal was very long term. And that's important always to recognize, I think. And not just for their own community. You know, I think Absolutely, that was part of yes. the story. It was like they wanted, you know, the people who the parents she talked about, the leaders in that community, I think, had a specific understanding that they could be a place that was helping to improve education for students in communities like theirs in other places. Right. And, and that was a reason for them to to bother to engage with Ball State. And again, it's right. We 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 should not imagine that we ourselves have sort of large motives yeah. and that everybody else, right, has just narrow interests at heart. But that's uh, but I think we do. And I think that's oh, the exactly. I think yeah. that's often the conversation. So I think it's just important to keep in mind. Yeah, that that just because you're focused on the community partner benefits don't doesn't mean you should assume what those benefits are. Um, it, it really has to be a, a, a bigger conversation about what they are, what they could be, that kind of thing. Well, I think you can see why uh, we were very excited to have the opportunity to celebrate Eva's work with the Ehrlich Award. Uh, and we're excited that she will be. Uh, with us in Minneapolis for the Midwest Conference, and people have the opportunity to uh, hear her thoughts and those of her her fellow finalists. So, uh, yeah, excited to have the opportunity to share that as we yep. move in that direction. Yeah, that's going to be an exciting plenary. And again, just really encourage people to join us in the Twin Cities. I really, um, you know, this is only the second time we've done this larger Midwest conference. And the quality of proposals we got for sessions was really, really incredible. And we're so excited for what we were able to select. Wish we had been able to even select more. So it's really going to be a pretty um, remarkable program. And I'm just excited. I look forward to being there. Yay. All right. Well, this has been another edition of the Compact Nation podcast. As always, we hope to hear from you. We'd love to know your comments. You can email us at podcast at compact.org. You can find us on social media, hashtag Compact Nation pod. Let us know what you think about our guests. Let us know who should be a guest. Uh, let us know what you think. And of course, subscribe, tell your friends all that good stuff. We want to reach as wide an audience as possible. 
So thanks, everyone, and have a great day. Bye-bye. Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. And remember, until you're satisfied that the world is good enough, keep doing something.